Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures on the history of yoga. Let's continue with the next lecture. Oh, Yadivi Sarva Bhuteshu Shakti Rupinasam Stita Namastasya, Namastasya, Namastasya Namo Namaha Oh Yah Devi She, the goddess Her form stands in all beings to her, we owe honor and salutation. The Yoga Sutra of Patanjali ends in its final verse with the words, Chit Shakti. It's almost like a cliffhanger because so much is implied in that phrase about the nature of reality, the nature of action within the world. Just as the practices of yoga by Haribhadra, as well as Patanjali, often find feminine gendered nomenclature, so also this suggests that there is something of freedom in the things of the world. A few centuries later, Kshemaraj, interpreting the tantric philosopher Abhinavagupta, opens his text, which is the heart text on the nature of the revelation of consciousness. And he says, consciousness is the goddess. This completely confuses the genderization that had been up to this point so very prevalent. And what we begin to see expressed through Tantra in its various ways of configuring and reconfiguring the world is that consciousness itself is to be found in the thing not in the retreat from the thing, but in the embrace of all that we might once have held as merely shadow. By the seventh century, tantric texts had arisen within Hinduism, as well as Buddhism, and later Jainism has its own version of Tantra, and at the core of it is this notion, scripted in the Buddhist idea of the bodhisattva, that there is goodness to be found in the world. One of my teachers of Tantra, Christopher S. George, put it this way. He lived with lamas in Kathmandu and translated very carefully a text called the Chanda Maharoshana Tantra, 
And he trained in that text, meaning he had to decode all of the hidden words. He had to understand the construction of a mandala and the function of the construction of a mandala. And what he came to understand is that through the practices of Tantra, one disassembles who one used to be and reassembles oneself in the image of the chosen deity, of what in yoga is called the Ishta Devata. And those rituals are rigorous rituals that turn upside down everything that you've been taught about right and wrong. And they've been designed in such a way that you're supposed to do these things normally forbidden, but only do them once to quench your curiosity and never again be even inclined toward any negative inclination. And as part of this process, my colleague Janet Chiazzo, now at Harvard University, has articulated so sweetly that part of this process of disassembling one's own attachments requires reconfiguring oneself and revisualizing oneself and reimagining oneself as a Buddha, as a Bodhisattva, as the chosen deity, regardless of tradition. In this way, it's a little bit like the Orthodox branch of Christianity, which has as its core Amatio Christi, that our job as humans is to become more and more like Christ. And like that, the Buddhist of Vajrayana of the Tantra strives to become more and more the Bodhisattva more and more generous and compassionate following the path of the Buddha. In the Shaiva Hindu version, known as Shaiva Trika, that form of Tantra, as taught by Staneshwar Timulsina, says that the body itself is the key constituent that the process of Tantra is to visualize one's own body as transformed into a crystalline, samadhi-infused body. And he goes on to say that mantra elevates language. Mantra, recitation, ya devi sarvabhuteshu shakti rupana samstita, Namastasya, namastasya, namastasya. Repeating those words empowers the world as goddess to speak to us and encourage us to see what Timulsina says, to regard the body as temple and cosmos, to give ourselves permission to enter into that bliss and awareness and to allow that preconditioned mind to be reprogrammed away from the downward spiral of afflicted karmic impulse and toward a reshaping and a reforming 
into an elevated and improved sense of self in the world. Tantra visualizes and internalizes the cosmos as follows. It begins with the base of the earth and our seat and our excretory functions correlate with the earth. And that firm foundation is visualized in a square, north, east, south, west, colored with an earthy yellow and invoked with the syllable lum, 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 providing the foundation. Upon the earth flows water, reside lakes, oceans, rivers, and that water, as it rolls, takes the shape of a half circle, and as its waves kick up, as we see in the ocean, that water carries the color white, and that water finds its signification through the mantra vam, 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 vam. And the water, of course, resides in those areas of the body beneath our abdomen where we give water of various sorts. And then in the middle, in the place of digestion, we have our body fire. And that fire, burning red, takes the shape of a triangle, like the upward flames, and that fire evokes, is evoked by the syllable, the mantra, rum, rum, rum. And above the fire, in the realm of the heart, in the realm of the breath, in the shape sometimes of a hexagon, perhaps, and with a smoky sort of color, like the smoke of incense, we find air. And with air, in Tantra, the syllable, the mantra assigned is yum, yum, yum. And then energizing all of that which resides in the throat and pointing toward that which lies above into the sky, depicted by a sphere of no color, of empty space, we have the syllable hum, hum, hum. Each tradition may have its own variation, but the notion, the core practice within Tantra is to see this body, this very body as a temple, to see this body as the potential residence of the bodhisattva, of the siddha, of the yogi, of the sadhu, of the sadvi. And through this 
recitation, through this visualization, to effect a change whereby, having done what needs to be done, having done everything that possibly could ever be done, the body itself, along with the mind, find themselves transformed into a place of greatness, transformed from selfishness to a posture of selflessness, able to take up service, seva, able to take up bhakti, devotion, able to take up yajna, sacrifice, able to take up a voice that says, an-aham vadi. It's not me speaking out of self-interest, but it's this, this presence that is here to give honor to all that needs help. With this valorization of the feminine, we see in a text influenced by Tantra called the Yoga Vasishta, we see a celebration of so many forms to be appreciated. Names of the goddess, Jaya, she who provides victory. Siddha, she who gives success and prosperity. Aparajita, she who is invincible. Virya, she who is mighty. Durga, she who cannot be defeated. Uma, whose letters rearranged become the very syllable Om. Gayatri, honored because she is chanted every single day. Savitri, the matrix of all things. Saraswati, the goddess of knowledge and culture. Shri, the goddess of wealth. And it is said in this beautiful text that echoes the themes of Tantra that she, the goddess, as she moves through the world, adorned, that around her neck, as if a string of jewels, contains all cities, continents, mountains, and islands. The text says, her power, her vibration, supports the earth with all its seas, islands, forests, deserts, and mountains. She, present within every circumstance, she, in fact, the sum total and the particular of circumstance, that she alone is the gateway to our freedom. This turns 
Indian philosophy upside down. When the colonialists came, when the British, who tried to write the definitive history, looked at Hinduism, they said, the only true Hinduism is a Hinduism that denies the world. The only true Hinduism is a Hinduism that privileges that male gaze and urges people to rise above the world, to renounce the world, to go off as a sadhu, the ultimate religious practice, to isolate oneself within a cave. And they actually passed a resolution decreeing true Hinduism to be a religion that denies the world. This flies in the face of yoga. This flies in the face of how religion finds expression in India throughout history and well into the present. What we find all throughout street corners, what we find tucked away at the edge of a village, what we find in virtually every household is an honoring, an honoring of the great elements, the pancha mahabhuta, through the altar, an altar made of earth or brick, an altar bathed and cleansed with a bit of water, an altar holding in place a lamp, a deepa, a living expression of the god Agni, an altar that will be blessed with wafting incense, reminding us of the flow of air and breath, and an altar that creates an ambience, that creates a space of quiet and celebration and honor. Trees, as you travel through India, quite often have been made sacred. People will tie things to trees, they'll daub a little paint on trees, they'll pray to trees, and trees are said to give great blessing. Mountains, mountains are held not only as symbol, but the living reality that calls people to that place of ascent. The Himalayas, the Vindhya ranges of the south, Mount Arunachala, where Ramana Maharshi lived within a cave and welcomed visitors from all over the world some hundred years ago, drawn to his message of connection. Although he had, in a sense, retreated from the world, he drew the world to him. India does not deny the world. India seeks to transform the world. The body is not to be denied. The body is to be celebrated. A renouncer, a yogi, a yogini, through doing the many practices of asana and pranayama, yama and niyama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, samadhi, okay, all of those practices allow one to re-enter the world 
and engage the world from a place of giving, from a place of generosity. And in the best of worlds, everyone through yoga comes to that great place of peace. Avatara. And the Ramayana, a vast text, tells his story, is the favorite son, born to a king, owner of a hundred chariots, Dasharatha. One thing happens after another. He goes into exile. His wife gets taken away to Sri Lanka. He goes and he fights the demon Ravana, rescues his wife, brings her back. They rule happily. Rama questions her faithfulness. There's a little bit of a tragedy, but along the way, everyone agrees that Rama and Sita portray the loving couple, portray justice, and set a template for harmony of kingdom from a golden age. Now the Ramayana, which dates probably the narrative from more than 2,500, 3,000 years ago and took its present form maybe 2,500 years ago, the Ramayana is a story that has inspired so many temples so many different versions. The tribal peoples of India tell their story of the Ramayana. The Jain people of India tell their story of the Ramayana. It has an amazing power, even with its modern serialization on television. Changed India some 20, 30 years ago. Pieces of it have been performed. The whole city of Aranasi transformed periodically for 30 days into a live reenactment of its major events. It also inspired a work called by some the Mokshopaya, a version of which is called the Laghu, or the short version of the Yoga Vasishta, and another version called the Yoga Vasishta, which tells the following tale. When Ram was a young man, probably just barely a teenager, a sage called Vishvamitra came from the forest into the city of Ayodhya and complained to Dasharatha, the king, that the munis and the sages and the sannyasins and the sadhus and the sadvis living in their ashrams trying to meditate 
kept on being invaded by marauders and bandits, and that the king, Dasharatha, as his duty, must send police in order to chase away those who were being harassed or to protect those who were being harassed and to protect the meditators in their quiet forest ashram, in their retreat. And Dasharatha said, I don't have anybody I can spare. And Visvamitra, the sage, looked to the right of King Dasharatha and said, you have a hero here. His name is Ram, your firstborn, noble, strong, valiant. Now in the big narrative of Ramayana, he just goes off and does what needs to be done. But not so with the Yoga Vasishta. According to the Yoga Vasishta, the minute that Vishwamitra left the court, and the minute that his father began to turn his gaze and dispatch Ram on this task, Ram fell into a deep despair. In the very first book of the Yoga Vasishta, a text of more than 29,000 verses, as he fell into questioning what is the use? Echoing the words of Arjuna, why should I go off and fight? Why should I get involved? Wouldn't it be better to renounce the world? Wouldn't it be better to go and meditate? I don't want to do all this worldly work. I want peace. And he refused. He went up to his father and said, uh, I'm not going to do this. We can almost visualize that teenage Hamlet moment where, I, uh, what do I do? I don't want to do this. Are circumstances forcing me? If so, I refuse. I refuse to be forced against my will. So what King Dasharatha did was beckon the sage Vasishta. Many of you Practitioners of yoga asana know the Vasishta pose. And this is sort of what he had to do. He had to like go on one hand, turn himself into a side plank, lift up his leg. This is a move that requires a great deal of balance and maneuver. And it in many ways encapsulates the task ahead of sage Vasishta. His job was to turn around the head, turn around the emotions, turn around the despairing body of the young Lord Ram. Now, as a parent, I have learned that when dealing with young people, sometimes the direct route will not work. And this was a wisdom known by Vasishta. So rather than sitting him down and telling him, Rama, you're a Kshatriya. Rama, you are the son of a king. Rama, you are a prince. Rama, go protect those meditators in their ashrams. No, that simply would not work. 
So instead, Vasishta employed a strategy, skillful means. And in the course of 64 nested stories, disabused Rama of the notion that the world has no purpose or meaning. And in fact, of all the literature of India, the Yoga Vasishta stands right up there at the top, proclaiming that the world is a place of great beauty, the world is a place of a drama in which we must and can be full participants without losing our freedom. So again and again, we see in the Yoga Vasishta the notion put forward that everything in this world is evanescent, okay? an almost Buddhist commitment to the falling away of things. But simultaneously, there is this philosophy written into the second book whereby Vasishta explains to his young protege using language directly borrowed from Mahayana Buddhism, the Lankavatara Sutra, a vocabulary of citta matra, that yes, consciousness is all we have, and consciousness is all we have, including the thoughts that we think. And the insight communicated in this book lifts up a unique philosophy of parusha. And I'd love the etymology of this word. Purusha is that witness consciousness, never involved. And parusha suggests a bridge, a bridge, a go-between from the removed witness ever uninvolved and disinterested, bridging with Prakriti, bridging with the world of action, the world of creativity. Now this particular text became beloved by the Persians at the Mughal court. And in the 16th century and in the 17th century, summary versions were translated no fewer than 16 times into the Persian language. And it went from the Persian court to Iran, and from Iran circulated throughout the Muslim world and became a way for Muslim theologians and philosophers to understand the gift of Vedanta, to understand a philosophy a little bit like a thousand and one Arabian Nights that calls into question that human propensity to put selfishness at the center of each and every concern. And in fact, there are passages from the Yoga Vasishta that state rather boldly 
that everything that happens in the world, am I responsible for it? And actually says, no, God does it all. Echoing that wonderful, beautiful, inshallah, proclamation of, you know, if it's meant to be, it will be, God willing. A little bit of that in the Yoga Vasishta and a great deal of information about how our thinking constitutes, creates the world that we inhabit. The Yoga Vasishta also includes a seven-fold analysis of yoga unique to the Yoga Vasishta as we go through the seven phases, we will be able to see a reflection of Ram's own dilemma, the philosophy of Vedanta that places sleep and dream at the core of how we find meaning, and it also communicates the idea that we can, in fact, live a life of freedom and enter a death with no regret. So it begins, as did young Rama, with renunciation. That at some point along the human journey, there will be a moment of disappointment a moment that causes us to pause and examine, and a moment where we really pull back, as did Ram, and say, I don't really think I want to do that. Nivriti, it is called, and it's an interesting echo of Chitta Vritti Narodha because in this instance, it's not because there's peace. It's because there's something broken in your world. And this, as we have with the Buddhist discussion of dukkha and darkness, this becomes the beginning of the spiritual path. And then the second level is called vicharana. And it says that once that brokenness disturbs that world that had been set so nicely in motion, that there will be deep questioning, vicharana, that koham, why do I do this? Who am I? What is my role? Why do my parents annoy me so? Why do my children cause me so much grief? Why does my workplace present challenges? Why, why, why? And it's not just about asking the questions, it's about finding the answers. Perhaps forgiving your parents when later in life you come to learn of difficulties they encountered in childhood of forgiving your children as you see every human goes through developmental phases, 
of reconciling in the workplace by understanding the complexity of those working toward a common cause. And as those answers begin to bring a little bit of peace through understanding, there's a place of non-attachment, a samsanga. So rather than always being anxious, always being in a place of stress, there's a bit of a calm that can set in in this developmental, deeply psychological way of viewing yoga. With that sense of, oh, you know, that's just narrative, that's just a drama unfolding. As Shakespeare said, the whole world is a stage and we are merely players upon it. As that distancing comes, the world itself seems to appear as if it were a dream. And the Sanskrit for this, again, drawing words well known in other yogic texts, svapna loka. Loka, a world. We involve ourselves with the world of family, we involve ourselves with the world of work, we involve ourselves with the world of our yoga community, so many worlds we inhabit. And at this level, at this fourth level of yoga, not that it's deemed to be unimportant, but it's seen to be dreamlike. And as one reflects that sometimes we learn more from our dreams than we do from our waking state, a type of meditation can be entered spontaneously, the fifth level, where your relationship with externals becomes inseparable from the depth and the richness of your internal life at its most quiet, and you emerge into a non-dual state as if you are in deep sleep. And it's called Advaita Shishupta. Every occasion for the thingness of things, for the selfness of self, for the selfishness of self, all of those disappear. And from that, you walk into the sixth level of human life, the greatest level of human life, which is called Jivan Mukti. Living liberation. Beautiful yoga center with that Jivan Mukta yoga in New York City, built on this premise that yes, it is our birthright to see through the difficulty, to understand the difficulty, to rise above that difficulty, to use that lesson as a tool for ongoing discernment, developing that abode of happiness, and then being able to manifest that happiness as a Jivan Mukti, as someone whose life 
Life itself has been freed of the snares of trouble and be like a bodhisattva, truly of service to others. And then one is ready at the seventh stage to enter into a death without return, to become videhamukta, to ascend to that siddhaloka and dwell forevermore in sat, chit, ananda, existence, consciousness, and bliss. Of the 64 stories of the Yoga Vasishta, also known as the Mokshopaya, two in particular encapsulate this philosophy that values the intimacy of emotion as the gateway to understanding the rich tapestry of all that is possible all that can help us move to freedom. And the first story that I'll tell is a story of two brothers who live with their parents on the banks of the Ganges River, high above Rishikesh in the Himalayas. And they live in a beautiful place where the rishis gather to sing the hymns of the Samaveda. They live with the mountains tangled with trees rising above and with the beautiful rushing glacier-fed waters, the green, green waters of the Ganges passing incessantly all year long, and they live truly a blessed life. Their father and mother, however, grow into their advanced years, and one day, dear Gatapas, the father, who had practiced austerities for a very, very, very long time, grew weary of inhabiting this senile body, and as the story has it, his soul just flew off like a bird. And then his wife, who had long herself trained in the austerities of yoga, similarly left her body just as a bee exits from a lotus. With both parents gone, the elder of the two brothers 
whose name was virtue itself, Punya, made all of the preparations as required by the eldest son to build the funeral pyre of the best of wood, leavened with sandalwood, to dress and wrap the bodies, each arrayed on the funeral pyre, to do the sacred act of the eldest son of, with an iron post, making an opening in the skull of each departed parent so that their spirits could soar into the heavens and beyond the heavens into the state of freedom. And he lit the flame And the two of them watched as they saw their beloved parents incinerated there on the banks of the Ganges in the shadow of the beautiful Himalayan range. Pavan, whose name means the wind, was disconsolate. He ran wailing into the forest, whoa, lamenting the death of his beloved father and his beloved mother. He and Punya were encountering their most intimate experience of grief. Punya, well-equipped through the ritual to reconcile with knowledge all that had been learned about the soul never dies, the soul cannot be cut, the soul cannot be burned, the soul cannot be wetted, the soul cannot be dried. And as he recited those famous verses from the Bhagavad Gita. He felt great peace and deep gratitude for the love and care he had received from his parents all of those long years. Pavan, on the other hand, could not stop weeping, could not stop sobbing, And after the fire had died down, Punya listened, traveled into the forest, tracking and eventually finding through his plaintive cries, finding his younger brother in a puddle, in a huddle, crouched next to a rock, just racked with sadness. And Punya, again, starting with an echo from the Bhagavad Gita, said, younger brother, why do you grieve? All who have taken body will lose that body. Why can you not rise above 
and appreciate the good life our parents lived, the good life our parents gave us. The crying does not cease. In Pavan, is not able to even listen or hear the words offered by his brother. So his brother tries again and again and again. And he says, is it not the case that every friend will eventually depart? Is it not the case that every living being will go on her own way or his own way. What is a friend? What is a relative? But this philosophical inquiry does not bring any solace to his younger brother. So Punya then says, look, look over there. Do you see that beautiful deer? And one can imagine the story being told so many hundreds and hundreds of years ago when humans were few and nature was in abundance. And there would be a flock of deer. And he said, consider those deer in the meadow. Those deer, they also have taken birth. They will perish. But might it not have been the case that our parents in a prior birth were those deer and that we were their doe? That we had once been reared as deer. And then he points up to the top of the mountain. And it was one of those remarkable moments, a moment that I've had the pleasure and the gift of seeing a mountain lion. And he said, look, quick, what about that mountain lion up there? You know, we have had so many births. Our parents have had so many births. That mountain lion could be a future parent of our own parents. And then the geese. Consider the geese swimming in this beautiful pond full of lotuses. You and I, our parents, could have been geese. And all of these other people, they've been people so many different times, so many different incarnations. Why lament our parents? Why not lament all who have been, all who will be. And then he playfully points to the bee. He points to a beetle in the dunghill. He points far away to the south of India. And he says, you were a Brahmin over there in the Vindhya range. You were a member of that tribal family. You were, and pretty soon, Pavan catches on, and Pavan begins to share this expanded view presented by Punya, that our life is related to all other forms of life, 
and that the only cure for grief is what yoga calls pratipakshabhavana, to replace thoughts of negativity with thoughts and actions of positivity. And by the end of this long storytelling, Pavan finds peace, Punya continues to act with virtue, and Rama, who is hearing this story, is beginning to realize that his mood has been more like Pavan than that of Punya. And now, another story closer to the end of the book. And it's the story of a king and queen, not unlike Rama and Sita, that will eventually meet, marry, and rule, and not unlike Dasharatha and Kausalya, although that family has some complications. But Shikadvaja, as a young man, ascends to the throne of this small Himalayan kingdom, and with him comes his bride and beloved, Queen Chudala. And in their youth, they are given the responsibility for managing all of this small kingdom, the commerce, the governance, the protection. And they're doing a fine enough job. When Shikadvaja, a little bit like Rama, goes into a period of disaffection and questions. Oh, I have to get up and go to court again. Oh, all of those people are going to come and ask for justice. Oh, those merchants, they just don't want to be taxed. Oh, those soldiers, they get so lazy. And he just gets fed up and says, I want to know the meaning of life. He and Chudala, his queen, converse frequently, and as Shikadvaja offers all of his measured objections to ordinary, conventional, humdrum reality, Chudala insightfully sees, as Krishna instructs Arjuna to see, that all things are clusters of gunas that change and morph, and that something that you're so certain is this way forever all of a sudden changes into something else. And by applying this analysis and this wisdom, she not only enters the state of equanimity, but she, even as a young woman, enters proudly into the state of becoming a Jivan Mukta, of becoming a liberated woman while serving as queen. Nothing disturbs her, nothing causes distress. With patience, she's able to give wise counsel to everyone except her own husband. 
So her own husband, Shikadvaja, becomes such a pain in the depressive neck that she finally says, Shikadvaja, go into the forest, leave the kingdom with me, seek out wise counsel, find peace, please, for my sake and for the sake of the kingdom. So Shikadvaja goes up into the mountains, and while he is there, he begins to meditate, and he begins to interview different gurus, and the gurus come and go. His wife, Queen Chudala, meanwhile, receives periodic reports, and she knows that he's really not making any progress. He still holds an immature, hasty, judgmental mind, a disturbed mind. So she says, I know him better than anybody else in the world, and he won't listen to me. But if I disguise myself as a young Brahmin, maybe then I can get through to him. So she transforms her appearance by night and slips out of the palace and goes up to that ashram retreat, presents herself as a young Brahmin boy and says to Shikadvaja, I have trained in the wisdom of the Upanishads, in the wisdom of Vedanta, in the wisdom of yoga. Your mind needs stabilization. Learn the techniques from me. And gradually, Shikadvaja takes on the task of ethical thinking, positive action, of asana, of pranayama, of inward stability, of concentration and meditation, and yet he doesn't quite break on through to the other side. He gets very opinionated and judgmental about other people, and what he's really talking about is himself. And he particularly is haunted by memories of the conjugal life that he lived with his queen. And he's trying to deny those urges, to deny those urges. And the young Brahmin says to him, I know this troubles and destabilizes your mind, and I have a gift for you. I have a power to transform myself into the shape of a woman. Let me show you the beauty of carnal relations so your mind may be put at ease. So the transformation is effected. And by day, Chudala presides at court. By night, disguised as a younger woman, she sleeps with her husband. 
And yet, even this, his rigidity is such that he feels guilt. He feels, oh, I'm just so messed up. He's just still so frustrated and unstable. She puts him to yet another test. And she conjures for herself a young man in the forest and invites that young man to be by her side, all the while keeping a look to see the attitude and the emotion of Shikadvaja. But rather than as had once been the case, becoming angry, Shikadvaja says, my generous heart says to me, if you desire to be as a young woman with that young man, who am I to stand in your way? And with that, with that opening into generosity, Shikadvaja reaches his freedom. And in that moment, Chudala drops her disguise as a young woman, drops her disguise as a young Brahmin, and reappears in her full, mature, mature beauty, embraces her husband. The two of them walk arm in arm back to their kingdom and rule equally as Rajarshis, as enlightened sovereigns, free in themselves, providing freedom to all of their subjects. Such is the pattern of life that the goodness of the world can be experienced and embraced as the pathway to freedom for all. Tatsavitur Varenyam Bargur Vasya Mahi Dioyona Prachodayat O Shanti 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 One of the remarkable aspects of history is that the flow never stops. India communicated with China and brought the gift of Buddhism to the East. The Christians settled in India just years after the passing of Jesus. The Jews, some of them at the time of the destruction of the first temple in 586 BC, some of them landed in India, have remained there ever since. The Persians, back and forth through the Mediterranean into India. The Romans, via sea, traded with the southeast coast of India. And wherever we find the flow of people, 
we also find the flow of ideas. The Arabs and the Persians became quite intrigued with yoga. And when the British first entered in the 1600s, and as they built empire, extending through many regions of India into the 1700s and 1800s and the 1900s, they themselves found their culture transformed by India, and India in absorbing the English language and absorbing new forms of technology found itself transformed as well. In the 1700s, a man called Sir William Jones, listening to the Brahmins and listening carefully to the Brahmins, said, oh, the way they decline their verbs sounds a little bit like Latin and Greek. And it was quickly discovered that Sanskrit, in fact, is an older cousin of Latin and Greek. And as the European scholars discovered Panani's grammar, they themselves invented the field of modern linguistics based on what Taimini himself had discerned 2,500 years ago, that verbs arise from roots, that nouns, many of them, are derived from verbs, and that in classical languages, nouns are declined and verbs are conjugated in ways that carry through the centuries, and a whole science of cousin words, as well as cousin cultures emerged, linking together, filling in missing gaps that far in the distant reaches of antiquity, people speaking what are now called Indo-European languages traveled, some going as west as Iceland, and then eventually the Americas and all the way to Hawaii, and others going eastward ended up in India, and then took the sacred language of India all through the reaches of Asia, making a full circle around the world all the way from the other angle to Hawaii with the travel of the Japanese there. So interlacing, no culture, can exist in perpetuity, in isolation, from another culture. Women were brought by the British to India. Women who married to British civil servants became quite intrigued, sometimes following through with the interests of their husbands, sometimes interested in India for its own sake and for their own sake. And with the advent of these early translations and with the flourishing of projects such as the Sacred Books of the East, this expression of Indian culture and Indian civilization as transposed into the English language made it back to Europe, made it back to the Americas, 
And ideas, particularly in what for a long period of time was the British capital in India, Calcutta, Kolkata today, seat of the British presence, the people there began a renaissance of their own. And in the 1860s, a Brahmin priest called Sri Ramakrishna gathered together at Dakshineswar Temple on the banks of the Huli River a number of young people who discovered in Ramakrishna a way to connect with the vastness and the richness of Indian thought, culture, philosophy, and practice. And Sri Ramakrishna, whose brother had become a senior priest at the temple, began in his own practice, in his own devotion to the goddess Kali, to enter into those states of samadhi that were articulated in the great yogic literature of Patanjali, of the Yoga Vasishta, of the Hatha Yoga texts, and that samadhi state became infectious. He would go spontaneously, sometimes standing, sometimes sitting, sometimes gesturing with mudra, sometimes speaking and telling stories, and sometimes in a state of utter absorption. And these young, British-trained, highly educated people saw in Ramakrishna something missing in their own giving over to British ways. And one of them, Swami Vivekananda, following the death of Sri Ramakrishna from throat cancer, had been invited to travel to America for the Parliament of the World's Religions in 1893. And he was unsure. And in fact, part of his discerning process included traveling all the way to the very tip of India, Kanya Kumari, amazing goddess temple right on the beach there. And he went over to what is now called Vivekananda's Rock. And he gazed out and received in silent meditation, a message that, yes, cross that ocean. Allow the world to know the gift given by you, by Sri Ramakrishna, the gift of meditation, the gift of a spirituality, not for one place, but a spirituality for all of humanity. And he did this. He traveled to the Parliament of World Religions in 1893, and they rose to their feet as he addressed them as brothers and sisters, stating, we hold in common 
a common quest to know God. And he shared in that lecture and in lectures that followed throughout the United States, throughout Europe, throughout India as he returned there, over a course of less than 10 years before his untimely death of diabetes. He shared bhakti yoga. He shared karma yoga. He shared jnana yoga. He shared raja yoga. And he brought the gift of Patanjali. He brought the gift of the ideas of the Bhagavad Gita. He brought them to an audience far and wide, and sowed seeds in Los Angeles, where the book, Raja Yoga, which includes his interpretation of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, was crafted in a house in Pasadena, California. In Vedanta, society centers were created in New York and Chicago and the Thousand Islands, in San Francisco, in Los Angeles. And yogis began to come to America in the 1890s, in the 1900s, in the 1910s. And in 1920, Paramahansa Yogananda settled in Los Angeles, establishing eventually a headquarters on Mount Washington, just to the east of downtown Los Angeles, and establishing self-realization Lake Shrine in Pacific Palisades, and in various other locations in Southern California, in taking what his gurus had given him, Sri Yukteswar, Lahiri Mahasya, Babaji before that, had given to him, imparted to him, a hatha yoga training, a meditation training, a kriya yoga purification, including asana and pranayama. And at the mountain above Los Angeles, he brought in people from all over the world, some from India, some from various parts of the United States. One of them, Roy Eugene Davis, still teaching still alive, a direct disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda. And this began a dissemination of yoga teachings through mail order, whereby yoga became known to countless individuals throughout America and Europe. When he visited India, having returned after a long time in America, no other than Mahatma Gandhi came to Paramahansa Yogananda and took initiation in Kriya Yoga, in these purifications, in these asana exercises. Another early teacher arriving in 1920 was Yogendra. And Yogendra had learned yoga from a devotional teacher up near Pune and had probed into the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, the Hatha Yoga texts, and established a center for the study of yoga in Harriman, New York, in 1920. 
but he missed the deadline by a few weeks and fell under a dark period, a nativist period in American history that had first reared its ugly head in 1880 and 1882, when suspicion of Chinese led to the enactment of the first Asian Exclusion Act, which required people of Asian ancestry, particularly of Chinese ancestry, to depart America and restricted for those who remained, no women were allowed to come from China. And then in 1920, there was a backlash against people of Indian origin. Not only were Chinese excluded during that period, but no more Indians were allowed to come to the United States. In the 1900s and 10s, many people had come from Punjab, but many men had come as farmers. No women were allowed, and many of those gentlemen had married Mexican women because of anti-miscegenation laws. People were only allowed to marry people of the same skin tone. In 1920, Yogendra, a great yogi, closed his yoga center in Harriman, New York, and moved permanently back to Bombay, now known as Mumbai, and established the Yoga Institute, still directed by his son, and particularly the woman, Hamsaji, who married his son. And in India, the Yoga Institute continues to teach Hatha Yoga to over a thousand people each and every day and carry on these teachings of modern yoga informed by science. Then up the mountain, up the Vindhya range to the east, up toward Pune in the town of Lanavala, in 1924, Kavalya Dam was established. And in that place, the successors Tawari and others, to Swami Kuvalyananda, continued to teach. This, too, was a place where Gandhi had received instruction in yoga. This is a place visited by Krishnamacharya, and a research institute can be visited. You can travel there today, and you can see the very place where a scientific experiment was conducted by burying a yogi who had mastered the stilling of the breath. And the yogi climbed down into a hole covered with glass and systematically that hole was sealed. No oxygen was allowed in, but that yogi had mastered the holding, the kumbhaka, of the exhaled breath. And through that performance of Rechika, an experiment that's been repeated since, he was able to stay for a very, very, very long time, proving that a yogi, having mastered the breath, can also slow the heartbeat. 
And that experiment was written up and published. And as India moved toward its independence, Kuvalyananda's experiments drew the, the attention first of the colonialist government, and then with independence, there was deep and pervasive interest. Now that India had thrown away the shackles of colonialism, and it must be always kept in mind, what set India free? A movement inspired by Mahatma Gandhi. What inspired Mahatma Gandhi? His cleaving to, his personal involvement and teaching millions, millions of people the power of ahimsa, the power of nonviolence, the very first precept of yoga. What empowered Mahatma Gandhi? was holding to truth, satyagraha, speaking truth to power, amassing hundreds of thousands of people, including my own yoga teacher, to travel to the seaside and to gather salt water and allow it to evaporate, bearing witness for the whole world to see that the British had placed an unjust tax on salt upon the people of India. And the people of India took that truth in their own hands, the truth of their own power, that they have the power to create salt on their own. And this led eventually to the boycott of British goods. This led to the development of the yoga of Khadi, of plucking cotton, of spinning your own thread, and then learning to weave your own clothes. This was the template for the civil rights movement, for the workers' rights movements within the United States. Economic boycott leads to social change. That social change is premised on the yogi Mahatma Gandhi. This world-changing aspect of yoga continues to inform our culture as we move, as did Gandhi, toward those esteemed values of egalitarianism, toward those esteemed values of brotherhood and sisterhood, as spoken by Swami Vivekananda, these values of nonviolence and truth continue to inspire and continue to move the world forward closer and closer to what Martin Luther King Jr. called the blessed community. Shanti, Shanti. The period between 1920 
1965. If we think about it, was a very dramatic phase in human history. The 20s saw extravagance and a crash. The 30s saw the Great Depression. The 40s brought World War II and the beginning of the end of colonialism worldwide. The 50s brought the Cold War. And then the 60s brought the counterculture. And a very important piece of the counterculture can and must be tied to yoga. When Mahatma Gandhi did his good work, the whole world sat up and paid attention. For decades, he labored to unravel empire from what he thought must be the innate goodness of India. And in 1947, he succeeded. He succeeded through the enactment of nonviolent principles. And a young man who had served time for refusing to participate in the Korean War, when released from jail, a man called James Lawson traveled upon his release to India and for two years taught school and learned from the successors of Gandhi their techniques and strategies. And following that time, he went to Oberlin College intending to complete all that he needed to be for ministry. And Martin Luther King visited the campus of Oberlin and said, James, we need you in the South. And James Lawson transferred to Vanderbilt University and gathered his fellow African-Americans and regaled them, including Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, and told them what he had learned about nonviolence, about truth. And he arranged for many of those people to visit India. And Martin Luther King, as he wrote about that moment, went into an expression of great exaltation saying, it's as if I'm in the company of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And the dream that had come to fulfillment in India with freedom, he felt that dream, not unlike the dream that brought freedom to many people in America, is a dream that I can lift up for our people who still 
suffer the effects of slavery. And hence, a civil rights movement which had seeds in the Civil War of the United States took new life and through Gandhian techniques, Rosa Parks sat on the bus through Gandhian techniques of boycott. Students from all over the country began to sit at lunch counters and slowly the laws changed. Slowly civil rights became part of the good legacy of what it means to be an American. And as part of that conversation, part of the civil rights conversation in 1965 resulted in changing the immigration laws, suspending the requirement that the only people allowed to come to America were of European origin. And every country was given permission to apply for visa to be able to settle in the United States. And literally the landscape and the complexion has been altered for the better ever since. Between 1920 and 1945, it was virtually impossible for a yogi to settle in America and teach. But with that change, yogis returned to the shores of America. And those yogis included disciples of Swami Shivananda. These disciples included Swami Satchidananda, Swami Vishnu Devananda, perhaps the most well-known, and Swami Shivananda, a physician from South India who had practiced in Southeast Asia, who had settled in North India, and his early life gave us the blessing that he did his, his good work in English, which by that time had become the universal language for all parts of India due to that period of extended colonial rule. And he wrote more than 200 books in English about the benefits and the specifics about how to practice yoga in the early and middle part of the 20th century. And then his disciples, with the opening once again of America to yoga, began to open centers. Swami Satchidananda opened a wonderful center down in the east part of Greenwich Village. Another disciple, Swami Vishnu Devananda, opened a center in Chelsea, also opened a center which was somewhat short-lived on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, as well as centers in various other cities in America, the United States, and in Canada. Indra Devi began to visit and began to teach and gather followers in the Americas before she settled in Mexico and then also opening centers in South America. A psychologist philosopher yogi called Ramamurti Mishra 
came and established a center for yoga in the Catskills. And he wrote a textbook for yoga psychology and opened small centers in various parts of America. The theosophists who had already established going back really to the early part of the 20th century, had established theosophical centers that included teachings of yoga, began to again promulgate theosophical interpretations of meditation through their own teachings, and their anointed teacher who had come to the United States and was able to stay here because he had migrated in the teens, um, Krishnamurti. Krishnamurti centers popped up with a base both in Los Angeles and in Ojai, California, and so many others began to share these teachings of yoga, not only of the Hatha Yoga style, not only of the philosophical Advaita style, not only of the meditative tracks within yoga, but also bhakti came into America in 1966 with A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. And he actually first came to cook for Ramamurti Mishra, who was at the time in Greenwich Village, but on his breaks, he would go over to Tompkins Park and he would do as he had done since childhood in India. He would begin to sing the Mahamantra. He would begin to just simply sing, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And that was at a critical moment in the history of counterculture in America. Runaways were flocking, including my own friends, some of them, to New York City in search of a different way of being in the world. In the early 1960s, two psychology professors, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, had begun experimentation with LSD. And LSD and related hallucinogens such as mescaline and the more organic peyote were literally opening the doors of perception as had been documented in the 50s by Aldous Huxley and the idea was that the human mind works at only a small part of its capacity. And through these hallucinogenic substances, people were discovering aspects of the human psyche that seemed to tie into what Jung at the time was publishing about archetypes that made it possible for that horizon of limitation to be expanded. In the 1950s, conformist America 
grounded in a competitive materialism, and heightened by global influence hitherto unknown for the American project. Okay, that had created a conformity that many people found very confining. And Timothy Leary committed himself to teaching as many as possible about the benefits brought by the hallucinogenic experience. But his colleague, Richard Alpert, inspired in part by Ellen Ginsberg and others who had already gone to Asia, who had already discovered the benefits of the meditative Zen moment, Alan Watts in San Francisco, Philip Kaplow, who settled eventually in Rochester, New York, had discovered Zen, had discovered Taoism, and by traveling to India, by traveling to Vrindavan, by meeting Baba Neem Karoli in the early and middle 60s, Richard Alpert became transformed. And he brought that LSD to his guru. And his guru ingested it. And Richard Alpert went back and said, well, he said, eh? This, you know, it, it didn't phase him. And Babanim Karoli, through his sheer presence and through his heartfelt compassion for these lost Americans, provided a template, provided a model for making mantra, making yoga, the gateway into a transformation that does not rely upon hallucinogens or upon intoxicants of any sort. Now the yogis in India, many of them have been smoking marijuana for many, many years. But more importantly, they were able to generate a state of bliss through their mantra, through their meditation, through their movement, through their austerities. And Richard Alpert took initiation and became Ramdas and came back to his family homestead. And whereas both he and Timothy Leary had been dismissed from Harvard because LSD had been declared a banned illegal substance, what he did was write a book called Be Here Now, a book that I discovered as a teenager the year that it was published, and scripted a spiritual journey tying to the inner quest, independent of reliance upon drugs. And the very Sankhya opens by saying that all of the methods that help a person move toward self-actualization and toward freedom prove, if they're based in ritual, or if they're based on drugs, they prove ineffective. What we need to do is to utterly, through the process of introspection, understand 
how our lives connect with a greater life, how our lives and our very body can connect with the heavens above, how our body provides that connection point between heaven and earth, and through yoga, through karma yoga, through dharma, through meditation, we can bring ourselves to that place of greatest meaning. In intersecting with the psychology of Carl Jung, building on the pragmatist philosophy from a generation or two earlier of William James, which was inspired by Swami Vivekananda, a new script was born for what it means to be fully an American. Other teachers came during that decade of the 1960s. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi attracted first the Beatles in India and then Americans by the hundreds who trained in his technique of transcendental meditation, again premised on the contents of the Yoga Sutra. And then another parallel movement arising out of post-colonial India settled at the United Nations. And just as Mahatma Gandhi returned from South Africa to India and carefully plotted the overthrow of British rule, so also Sri Aurobindo, who had been trained in England, came back to India and as a college professor began to organize with others seeking to undo British colonial rule, and he was thrown in jail, as had been Gandhi. And when he sat in jail, he read the Vedas, he read the meditation manuals, he read the Upanishads, and himself was transformed. And when he was released from jail, he moved to the French Quarter, first near Surat, then near Calcutta, and then settled in Pondicherry, free of British persecution. And then in companionship with Mira Richards, who became known as the mother, they created a way of recovering yoga for the modern period. He spoke eloquently of the downward descent of consciousness and wrote how essential it must be as we move forward in history that we use that beautiful science of self-realization in order to effect change in the world. And one of the people, originally from Bengal, who had been attracted to this method in Pondicherry, came to the United Nations as an immigrant in the mid-60s, as newly allowed by immigration law, began a meditation each noon. He worked in the bookstore, and then, having settled in Queens, developed the Sri Chinmoy centers first there and then in various parts of the country that taught a type of devotional inward meditation. And then another woman 
who had come to study at Brooklyn College, woman who became my own guru, began sharing on Long Island in the towns of Massapequa and Amityville on the South Shore, the yoga that she had learned from the age of eight at a storefront studio in Calcutta. And she introduced young people to asana, to pranayama, to the yamas and the niyamas, taught meditation, and built a community that transformed many. She, the only woman from that, only, from that early period, was in touch with Swami Vishnu Devananda, with Swami Satchidananda, was known by Swami Rama, who had been brought to the Menninger Clinic in Kansas in the mid-60s, subjected himself to the type of testing that had already been in place in Lonavala, the Kaivalya Dham, and as has been demonstrated, was able to still his heart rate, was able to silence thought and respiration. And he established the Himalayan Institute with branches in various parts of the country and invited Ushabad Arya, a great Sanskritist from India, later known as Veda Bharati, to teach in America. And then those teachings return back to India the landscape was transformed, and it was a period of great turmoil in America that announced to the world that yes, yoga is here to stay. Yoga is very effective. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. The great moment of counterculture created an exuberance among young people in the 1960s and the early 1970s, somewhat unparalleled. And in this embrace of transcendental meditation, in this embrace of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, in this embrace of classical yoga as taught directly by these teachers from India, almost too numerous to mention, we see the beginning of a shift that at first, results in things self-correcting and then changing and re-emerging in a new way. And one of the people that came in the early 70s was Swami Muktananda, and he was heir of a well-known lineage in India established by Swami Nityananda, who had settled, had moved from South India to North India, or Central India, had settled in a town called Ganeshpuri. And people would go to be with Swami Nityananda 
people here in Los Angeles would have, as children, traveled and massaged the feet of Swami Nityananda. And as he gave his blessing for Swami Muktananda to spread what he had learned, mainly the teachings of Kashmir Shaivism, and as Muktananda established centers in the Catskills in New York and in California and elsewhere in the country, a new sort of way of devotion to the guru emerged that brought many blessings, but also there was a period of self-correction. And with many, many of the teachers, there had been moments where some women said, that really wasn't the right way to treat me. And simultaneously, American culture, particularly in the 1980s, took a decidedly materialistic turn. And with the reassertion of the value of the American materialist, gotta work, gotta be a professional, have to get ahead, have to own, and with the growth of the American home and the growth of the American wardrobe and the growth of the size of the American automobile, yoga was less popular in a certain sense. It fell out of the media eye and the 80s were a time of introspection, of self-correction. Amrit Desai, another one of the great teachers from the 60s and 70s, because of a leadership scandal and because of some women coming forward, inspired for those disciples to come up with a whole new model about how to do yoga in America. And they took over Kripalu Institute and created a governance board that excluded their founding guru and put into place very strict regulations and rules about what's acceptable between a teacher and student and what's unacceptable. Buddhists had gone through a similar turmoil. The Zen Center of San Francisco, Richard Baker, was asked to step down for violative behavior. And again, a more collective, more democratic way arose that ensured the protection of the teachings and the transmittal of the teachings, but a de-emphasis of the guru. And this corrective was very important particularly for women, particularly for younger people, so that when yoga experienced a resurgence in the 1990s, there was an ascent of women at the fore. The primary successor for Swami Muktananda, Swami Chidvalasananda, known also as Guru Ma'i, was beloved and sought after partly because she was a woman. Amici, the great teacher from Kerala, brought to the United States in the late 80s 
first to Los Angeles and then an annual tour that continues through all different parts of the United States and really the world. A woman, a mother, someone who nurtures, someone who welcomes, someone who is able to receive the cathartic tears of children that are seeking that loving parent that perhaps they didn't have in their youth. And yoga rebuilds itself with the voice and the presence of strong women, women who support one another, women such as Maria Zrati, a very strong Israeli woman who had studied with Patabi Joyce and then established in Santa Monica a haven for people to explore aspects of Hatha Yoga in all its intricacy and complexity. Women like Anna Forrest, who having had a very troubled childhood, riddled with issues of addiction, was able to find her inner strength through asana and pranayama and teach many and teach many teachers how to bring this yoga forward. Krishnamacharya's disciples, Patabi Joyce, his own son, Deshikachar, his own early disciple, Mr. Iyengar, Although those three remained primarily in India, many Americans and people from around the globe would take time from their life to go and spend three months, six months, a year, several years, again, learning the intricacies of asana, learning all of the subtleties of pranayama, and learning how to meditate some with Hamsuchi at the Yoga Institute, some with Swami Satyananda of the Shivananda lineage in Bihar, the Bihar School of Yoga, some at Swami Rama's institutes in Northern India, some at Swami Shivananda's trainings in South India and in North India. And these people, with direct access not only to the teacher, but to the vastness of Indian culture, they created a yoga here in America with its own stamp, not just merely of Indian authenticity, but full ownership from an American perspective. The cousin disciple of the Yogananda lineage, Bikram Chowdhury, established a form of hot yoga that became popular worldwide and has weathered the corrective of his public misbehavior. And again, yoga outlives the individuals that teach yoga. And what we see now is a culture and a climate where yoga has gone from the person to the popular books published by that person to its conveyance by disciples of all manner of ethnicities and identities. Many of Patabi Joyce's disciples, I'm thinking of uh, David Life and Sharon Gannon, have done their own interpretation. Sharon really bringing to the fore the vegetarianism that she has embraced. 
and movements that are incorporating different styles, not only of yogis, but different styles of movement, Shiva Ray, developing through her trance dance, Zen-infused creative forms of yoga, all of this, just sort of a celebration and a new bouquet. And we have a growing interest on the part of scholars. We have graduate programs in yoga studies in Los Angeles, in Venice, Italy, in London. And we have therapists, both out of the physical therapy realm and the psychotherapeutic realm, incorporating practices of yoga. We also have the mindfulness movement moving forward. And with this mindfulness meditative connection, we see that from the forest retreats of Southeast Asia, we see from the zendos of Japan replicated throughout America, we have an interest in how the particular sufferings of the stationary Western office-bound body can be brought into a place of healing through physical yoga, as well as the very distressed, intention-ridden body and mind of the ever-achieving, ever-more-productive American giving solace by the practices of movement, by the practices of mindfulness, by the practices of meditation, by the practices of mindful breathing. That all of that's for the good. And we see the emergence of the videotape culture. We see with Jane Fonda from some years ago, allowing people to not only find yoga with Richard Hittleman on PBS, but with the VHS, being able to do yoga not only in early morning, but to follow these early yoga teachers on videotape. And then on the internet, on streaming media, not only through YouTube, but through dedicated channels and websites and applications, apps, on the phone even, of how to do yoga. And then the broad sharing of yoga in its specificity and in its benefits on social media. Personal testimonies, people saying, I've tried this and it works. But just as there had been a shadow side where that worship of the guru turned into a little bit of an abuse of power, so also the commercialization of yoga has presented new challenges. As an elder now within the yoga community, I remember my amazement the first time that I saw someone clutching to a yoga mat. And I got involved for some time with a movement the Green Yoga Association, that problematized the yoga mat, the very popular sticky mat, as it came to be known, is suffused with phthalates, is laden 
with polyvinyl plastic that is not healthy for the human body. And a consciousness campaign was launched through that organization, and alternatives emerged on the market. I remember when yoga was done by people in jeans and a sweatshirt or a t-shirt, and all of a sudden, all of these clothing lines emerged, and yoga became a multi-billion dollar business. And on the one hand, the business model of subscribing to yoga as one would subscribe to a gym, not a bad thing. Many people make a living teaching yoga classes. Many people make a living selling yoga products. And that marriage of capitalism and yoga on the one hand is highly ironic. A parigraha, the great fifth vow of the yogi, is to minimize possessions. And yet we find that for some people, they have to own that proper cork block. They have to have now the upgraded, environmentally friendly organic yoga mat. They have to move in clothing that in no way restricts them. And I, I do see the benefit. I remember doing a yoga class with Anna Forrest in tight jeans and realizing, oh, I need my selvas, I need my India-style pants. And yes, it does make sense to suit your clothing to your movement. So I'm not one to criticize even the selling of yoga purely as a way of fitness. I'm glad that so many gyms include yoga as part of their training. And I know that as people involve themselves with yoga at any level, whether it be a simple breathing exercise to help reduce urge, urge to eat, urge to smoke, urge to get involved with any manner of addictive behavior, simple breathing. We know that it can be effective. There's a goodness and a greatness in the promulgation of yoga through all of these different platforms, through the internet, through books, through streaming videos, through gyms, and through really so many schools are now incorporating a yoga practice, not only into their physical education program, but also using tools of mindfulness and posture in order to enhance environments for student learning. All of this is a gift. And it really seems that the horizon is endless. As someone who's been involved with yoga for a very long time, as someone who has been slightly supercilious, that is the raised eyebrow about really? And then being convinced 
that if the intention is pure, then Chittavriti Naroda, the gift of the calm mind, the gift of comfort within the body, that gift of yoga will endure, will outlast, as it has the videotape, which is no more, will outlast that scoundrel yoga teacher, we must be forever vigilant, will outlast this quest of the scholar to know everything in its glorious detail, will outlast culture. And we've learned this from the history of yoga itself. We don't know for sure how or when it came into the world. We do know that it has been embraced by people of North India, by people of South India, by people that speak Dravidian languages, by people who speak Indo-European languages. We know that it has been embraced in Russia. We know that it has been embraced in Poland 100 years ago. We know that those first teachers are no more And we know that young people coming along are finding yoga, are making yoga their own, and that long after this particular moment, this particular moment of yoga, there will be a new moment. And that moment will be a transformative moment and a moment that carries new challenges and requires new interpretations. Just as there has been an Indian yoga, a Jain yoga, a Chinese yoga, a Japanese meditative yoga, there have been moments of early American yoga, middle American yoga, current American yoga, and it will continue. My name is Chris Chappell, and I'm an author under the name Christopher Key Chappell. I'm also uh, the Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology at Loyola Marymount University, where in 2002 I established a number of certificate programs in yoga studies, and then in 2013, ushered in the Master of Arts in Yoga Studies. And what we're doing today, given um, that academic background, is allowing viewers to understand about the history of yoga. And this is very near and dear to me, both as a scholar and personally. When I was a young teenager, I suffered, as I'm assuming most every teenager has a little bit of that angst, and I discovered yoga, and it met some rather pronounced physical needs that I had, it met some anxiety needs I had, and it meant, it really spoke to me philosophically and met some intellectual questions right exactly at 
at the right moment. And I started a personal yoga practice when I was about 15, 16, and had trained with a woman from India, Grani Anjali, from roughly 1972 to 1985, the year that I moved to Los Angeles from New York. And when I moved to Los Angeles, we stayed in touch right up to her passing in the year 2001. So on the one hand, yes, I'm a scholar. I studied Sanskrit in university classroom for six years. I hold degrees in comparative literature, religious studies, history of religions, theology, and I write books. I've edited many and have followed a lot of different academic interests. And that's a um, very important part of why I'm even qualified to sit in front of you. And this comes from a place of direct experience. I was there for so many formative moments, have been really blessed with not only sitting with my singular primary guru, but have been there for teachings from the Dalai Lama, from many Buddhist teachers, from many Jain teachers, from many, many Hindu teachers, as well as with purveyors of Kabbalah as, and Sufi teachers and teachers of Christian mysticism. So I feel just so blessed to be able, having taught for so many years in university contexts, to allow some of this information to be available through this magnificent medium now that is making knowledge and experience available to so many in different parts of the world, so many people of different ages that don't have the benefit of being able to be on a university campus, and even for people who are not able to be in some of the magnificent yoga studios that exist in different parts of the country. So we're hoping that you will learn a little bit about yoga, including speculation about its origins, tracking yoga through some of its sculptural representations, its manuscript and textual representations, and so that you can understand as you're sifting through some of the various modalities of modern yoga, some points of origin, and some constants throughout history that help us understand why we're attracted to yoga, and what we need in our toolbox in order to make certain that the yoga that we pursue is authentic and meets our needs as we move forward, hopefully making that connection between the best that we know that we can be and the day in, day out reality of our interactions with the world. So take your yoga, move forward, and take heart that you can know more than you thought. You can understand how your life fits with this larger culture, this larger history, and this rather magnificent, multifaceted philosophy and practice. Namaste. We spent the past several hours 
exploring the unknowable, calling out the fact we can't answer every question. We've also explored some of what is knowable. Specifically, we know that people sat in a meditative pose a long time ago. We know that temples bear witness to the practice of asana. We know from literature that yoga has connected itself with many philosophies, with many different practices. And we know that yoga continues to change, to adapt, to transform. And we know that at the core, we have two words lodged in our awareness regarding yoga. One is transcendentalism, and the other is transformation. That yoga calls us to what Maya Angelou expressed through her beautiful poetry, our better self, perhaps even our best self. We know that we can have at least glimpses and moments of feeling our greatness. And that's that transcendent and rather elusive part of human nature. And we know, because we have done it, that we can be transformed. Not transformed by someone else, but transformed because we've had the courage to get on the mat. We've had the courage to sit up straight. We've had the courage to ask, why can't I sit up straight? And that remains the enduring gift of yoga. Yoga presents a path of self-exploration. Yoga presents a method for self-transformation. And as I reflect a little bit on my own work and on my own life, I wish for others some of the gifts that I've received, namely an adult other than my parents who really took an interest and had a welcome ear, a coach, and we can all find those places of inspiration. I hope for you that you have curiosity to read some of the works that have been mentioned and also to explore and perhaps find and translate some of those works yet unknown. And perhaps even more importantly, I hope that this history connects you to a larger history that empowers your own creativity. To be creative in your practice and be willing to share any small gift that you've received to figure out a way to give honor to that moment, that moment of yoga, and allow that to be a little bit of your gift. Give it back to a person, just one person, 
or maybe, perhaps, you can make it a little bit larger. So I applaud you for listening to as much of this as you've been able to endure and encourage you to explore widely on Yoga Glow all of the various offerings, movement offerings, breath offerings, teacher offerings, philosophy offerings, and I express gratitude to those here who have created, again, this gift to the world that allows yoga to go far and wide. Carry on. Namaste. Thank you for listening to this series of lectures from Professor Christopher Chapel. I hope they've given you a sense of how, over the centuries, yoga continues to evolve as a way to understand ourselves, each other, and our relationship with nature. Professor Chapel has another series of lectures about the Yoga Sutras on the GLOW podcast. You can find the links to listen to them on glo.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.